0: Yes, I know the home values dropped. I know the real estate values dropped a few years ago. We will hit bumps in the road. We'll have things happen like with COVID. All in all, real estate's always worth more. We have to be smart about it, but we also understand that we have a business of returning money to investors. So it's time to sell.
1: Welcome to another episode of Kiss My Assets.
0: Our personal goal is to make as much money as possible with the least amount of risk. It's just something that we felt we really wanted to get involved in. It's empowering
1: that I don't just have to think of retirement when I'm old. That when I'm in my 30s, I can start building
2: a life for me and my children. Being
0: be able to have that stability for the future was the main reason why we're investing. This is my chance to invest in real estate projects that experienced professionals are managing.
1: Welcome to another episode of Kiss My Assets. I am Rocky Peterson, Vice President of Communications at Neighborhood Ventures and Lead Designer. And I am sitting here with Jamison Manwaring, co-founder and CEO of Neighborhood Ventures. Hi, Jameson. Hi. As well as John Kabrowski, the President of Real Estate Co-founder of Neighborhood Ventures, all the big deals.
0: Wow. How come you <laughs> have your back to the camera and I've got to look at it? <laughs> There's another one here. There's oh, another okay. We've okay. we got a full <laughs>
1: setup. Don't all don't right. question how the sausage is made. All right. In this podcast, we go into a lot of detail that is kind of hard in other scenarios and other platforms. And the topic today is actually really interesting. Many of our investors have indicated an interest in what goes into what determines when we sell a property that we've acquired that we've renovated, that we've stabilized, it's cash flowing, all the good things. And what is kind of that turning point that determines when we sell? If we could start off with what initially determines the hold period and your unit price per unit that you'd like to sell for, that kind of structures the whole deal when we're approaching investors in the first place. And either of you can answer because you both have- I'll start
0: off, but I'll let him tone in on this part. So the number one most important thing to do you're buying a property. Run your numbers. It's like any other thing in life. It's a matter of what the margin's going to be on it. So we look at things and say we love the property. Here's what we think we can do with it. But what are we going to have to sell it for to make the make the return the pair investors and make it a viable option for us? That's when Jameson comes in. There's a lot of underwriting on the on, on the project and says we try to be conservative on the back end on the value. But Jameson will say, look, how much is it really going to cost to renovate? What's going to take to to make this property profitable enough for us to, to, to spend our time on it? And he plays with those scenarios. So I'll let you, I'll let you talk about that because that's really, I could say, I love the property, I love the neighborhood. Gosh, we could do a lot of work on this property. You can project. even
1: see the value. You just yeah. have to know exactly how much value.
0: And we've looked at that stuff okay. before.
2: John brings a lot of hands on experience, especially in the Phoenix market, and has the instinct. I try to look at it a little bit cold as a financial <laughs> transaction. If you're going to buy it, yeah, what is it going to look like from an investment standpoint and from a high value of money standpoint? We're going to have to spend. X number of dollars to purchase it. We're going to have to spend X number of dollars to renovate it, to reposition it. And what does that look like over a few years? And typically our projects are three years. And then we have some that are two years because they're a little smaller or they might be a little lighter renovation.
1: So in that way, you you feel like we're going to be able to get it stabilized and cash flowing faster. Is that typically what it determines whether we have a two-year hold period or a three-year?
2: Right. Okay. We don't want to minimize and shorten our runway for this process of turning an asset that's underperforming to a high-performing asset. Credit John both finding those types of assets that are underperforming and John and the, and the, his whole team and turning them into high-performing assets. It takes some time. Yeah. This isn't a flip a house in two, three months and make a quick buck. This is taking a a multi-million dollar asset and repositioning it to increase the value 20 to 40% typically over that time period. So we want to give ourselves enough runway that makes to sense. be able to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And John, when you're looking at these properties, at least initially, I mean, so I guess if Jameson's cold and he looks at those numbers really cold, then that would make you hot. <laughs> I mean, uh, you have to have that initial...
0: On the other side of it. <laughs> there was a property we looked at not too far from our office, 24th Street, Thomas area a couple of years ago, Jameson had stumbled on it from a friend of the family or something. I forgot how we got it. But he was looking at it going, hey, these numbers work. And look, we could sell it for this price. And I looked at him and said, we'll never get that price. Not. I mean, I think we would now. It would have worked out. But at that point in time, right? there were so many better options than to break our knuckles on this property in that neighborhood at the value I thought we're gonna get when I was like, no, 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 no. So we both play that side back and forth. I'll look at it and go, I I know that will work if you get to the number, but we're not gonna get that number right away in that neighborhood.
1: Right. And we have to be so conservative in terms of our projections because we don't get paid until all the investors get
2: paid.
0: Well, we want the investors (laughs) to get paid too. (laughs) Yeah. And they get paid first.
1: So (laughs) it's like we can we can have those margins. Is that correct? Am I right in saying that?
2: Yeah. We aren't aggressive in our underwriting. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what other people do. But there's different people do this business different ways where they really try to make these numbers look good and then they never hit their numbers. And one of the things we agreed on early on as a team is we always wanted to do what we said we were going to do under promise over deliver for our investors. And we keep a conservative bent when we do our model.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's it's borne out. So let's go into in determining when we sell and kind of the situation that we look at in order to be able to move forward with that. Let's go into the properties that have sold. Starting with Wilson, Ventron Wilson was our first project. And could you give me some broad strokes what the hold period that we said it was going to be and then what it was? Just giving it like a summary.
2: Yeah. And as we looked at the project, it was our first one. So we wanted to make sure that we gave ourselves enough time to do everything we wanted to do. But we also knew it would take a little bit of time to get all the gears to turn correctly on our first right, one. Right, right, sure. So we did a three-year hold period. It was a 12-unit building, and John can talk more about the specifics of what happened in that three years, but we decided to do a three-year hold period. We ended up selling it about three quarters of a year. So we didn't hit all the way to the three years, and our goal is to be right at three years or, or slightly under that so that our investors know that they'll they'll get their money back in that that time period. But once we got to the point where we had it stabilized and generating cash flow, then, then we're in a good position. We have an asset that's performing well. Right. And then, you know, John has a really pulse on the market, like few people in the in the Phoenix industry because of the other company that he runs, ABI. You, you guys see what's happening in the apartment market probably better than anybody else in Phoenix, in the nation, probably because you're here local. If, if we kind of rewind back, you can probably remember, John, when we decided <clears throat> to sell that, the, the things we were seeing and why we decided to
0: make that decision then. That project ran well. I spent a lot of time, we always joke about hauling trucks and stuff (laughs) and finding guys to work on it. And it was also a matter of building our teams, building our understanding how to handle our construction draws, how to get our materials, how to get things done. So that was a big learning curve on that and it worked out. But we had pegged a value on the back end we're going to sell it for. And we call that a strike price. Yeah.
1: A strike price. Okay.
0: You do that in anything. If you buy a stock and that stock shoots up to a certain price, disciplined investors go, you know what? I'm not sure where it's going to go, but I hit my target. And I'm going to take the chips off the table. And you have to have those numbers. On that project, we had a number that we, we had to hit. And the thing that complicated that project, and I'll just be blunt with everybody, is we were in contract to sell it at that number right when COVID hit. Mm-hmm. So we had to quickly pivot from, hey, we're selling it. Everything's going great. This is moving forward to 30 days before it's going to close, two weeks before it's going to close. The buyer came back and said, yeah, with this COVID thing, we don't trust the market. And not blaming him, I, it was a scary time when everything came apart. And he didn't move forward. So we had to repivot and go back to figure out how we we're gonna run it. But the value we came up with was based on purchase renovation dollars staying within the budget, where we thought the rents are gonna go based on post renovation and then what reasonable return we had to get to pay our investors plus have the profits we need to make it worth our while.
2: And I think at that time we were at about the two year mark. And so it was a little early in the time horizon anyway, but we hit our strike price. We tell all our investors we'll sell once we hit the strike price. So once we do to John's point, we're disciplined about that. Yeah. Someone in Wall Street taught me it's kind of like a clock, an old school analog clock. Once the minute hand hits six, if you can buy somewhere around seven, seven or eight, you don't try to hold it all the way to 12. It's almost impossible to buy at six and hold at 12. That's what everyone tries to do. But buy at seven or eight, you're seeing things move. These are kind of the up and coming neighborhoods. When you get to 10 or 11, that's kind of when you try to sell. You can't always get every ounce of profit. But that leaves us a lot of profit for our investors and for us as a company for the work that we do. And in the case of of Wilson, we hit that number. And the good thing is when the first buyer decided not to move forward with it, we still had plenty of time to still hit our three-year mark. And the property was cash flowing well. And we were paying 6% distribution to all our investors. So we were in a really good position at that point because we have a cash flowing asset. So John and I kind of looked at each other and said, everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. We didn't know how COVID would shake out, but it ended up working out fine. We
0: focused on the blocking and tackling. Make sure the property's running, keep it full, do what you can. There's so many sayings in every business that one of the sayings in our our real estate business is pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. So don't be greedy. Take your profit, shake the hand of the guy you sell it to, and leave some on the table for the next guy. So the same idea, there are definitely buildings we own, we have owned, things we're going to own. You kind of go man, I love that building. I love the location. <laughs> but when you hit those numbers, and we were talking about this before we started talking in the whole podcast, when you hit those numbers, we've already taken a whole lot of upside out of that project. Right. Not that the next guy is not going to have it because they will. It's a great asset and the market's doing really well. Right. But to duplicate the same bump we just had, it takes so much longer to get there. So I absolutely. Mean, graphics on this are pretty fun to talk about how, how much you make from here to here. And then over the next three years, your return is not going to be anywhere near that. But the next buyer goes, I'm not buying it for the big bump. I'm buying it right. because I want a great cash flowing asset. Got to be smart about stuff and discipline. And that's what we both do back and forth. We look at stuff, every project. And you can't be afraid to walk away from things.
1: Right. Well, because that that's our model is to renovate, see that substantial increase. Whereas that's not necessarily the next guy's model, but right. we have to be disciplined in order to stay true to our model. And James and I have talked a lot about this. It's the why of what you do and it's your thesis, your investment thesis. And that's what we've done. And to your credit, I think that it takes a little discipline because when in a market like this, where things are doing so well, there is a, a tendency to just want to like hold on to all our, our little precious properties it's and good watch goodness. them grow. <laughs> and there are people
0: that do very, very well. Yeah. I've met with somebody yesterday in San Diego that owns some properties in Phoenix. Super nice guy. He had put some partnerships together. And he was talking about the property and I said, you want to know what that property's worth today? He was like, I'm afraid to ask. Yeah, Because he had to sell it at the bottom of the market, which is 2009, because everything started falling apart. Basically the properties were like four times what he sold it for, and he was oh, like, oh, he's like, yeah, painful. I kind of don't want to hear that. That's why real estate's a great investment. I hope you're enjoying the Kiss My Assets podcast. This is Matt Sorensen with Directed IRA. We are a preferred provider for neighborhood ventures. For those who want to invest their IRA in real estate, we're an Arizona trust company. You can come to us in the office. If you want to do it the old fashioned way, reach out to us online at Directed IRA. We've been helping clients invest their IRAs in real estate for years. We've helped thousands do it successfully. Let us know if we can be a resource to you. You can learn more at directedira.com. We talk about the fact there are ups and downs and there are cycles, but generally, you look decade over decade or over the next 10 or 20 years, it's always going to cost more. And in an inflationary market right now, the value is going to keep going up. Yes, I know the home values drop. I know the real estate values dropped a few years ago. And we will hit bumps in the road. We'll have things happen like with COVID. But all in all, real estate's always worth more. You know, that, that's the way we we have to be smart about it. But we also understand that we have a business of, of returning money to investors. So it's time to sell. And, and, right. and we've done it on the other one. So we can talk about some yeah, of the other ones. Yeah, let's done. go
1: into Marlette.
2: Marlette's a a good example, kind of segue into the the point that we have kind of multiple stakeholders or customers or clients. One of them is the person who buys our building at the end. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to understand a bit about them. Um, They tend to be folks who want cash flowing assets. They don't want to manage a renovation. Managing a renovation, as we know, is a lot of work, a lot of stress. You got to execute if you're good at it, then it isn't outside of the scope of doing a great job. But a lot of folks, they may have sold an asset. If you're familiar with the 1031 exchange, you have a certain period of time where if they sell an asset, they need to exchange into a new like asset in a certain period of time. And our assets are great because they're cash flowing. They're newly renovated. A buyer can buy those and they know that for 10 or 15 years, they're not going to have to do much on that property other than collect the cash flow. And there are a <laughs> lot of people out there in that pool. California buyers, right? local buyers who are trading up assets, buyers who have owned older assets and they are a lot of work and they want to buy one of these that's newly renovated. So that's an important part of our whole equation is being able to sell it to a buyer on the back end. And by the way, we thought 1031 Exchange might be on the chopping block, and it looks like it's not. It's not oh, in the good. current tax bill. Yeah, good. Some of the other things we don't like in there, which we did our last podcast on, but we would be okay if that's the case because our business isn't built well, around that. I'm,
0: well, we'd be okay, but people that might be buying our buildings or in this business itself that were they able to carry forward the gains. It, it would changes, change that. It changes the dynamics yeah. of, and one of the core principles of why this works so well.
2: There was a lot of discussion about that and they ended up pulling that. So that's, that's important really to note. Yeah, as far as Marlette and our other property, 66 place, I'm actually just want to jump to 66 place because I was not ready to sell that. I think we were...
1: <laughs> it, was, it was a little bit your baby. <laughs> a
2: year and a half in. And John said, I think we can sell at above our strike price. I thought, "Well, oh, we're cash flowing this, it's yeah. doing very well. And I don't think you can sell for what you think, but if we can, we should sell. And we agreed on that. Two three months later, we sold for, for above our strike price on that right. one. Scottsdale's obviously a nice market. That property is uh, a really nice asset for somebody to own. And a doctor, local doctor, bought it. Yeah. And they, you know, they had some cash, wanted to get a cash flowing asset, and ended up working out great for them.
1: Yeah. So when you say it sold, uh, it was like a year and a half, right? The whole period on that, it ended up being. Isn't that yeah, correct? Yeah. So, did we get a little bit of pushback from investors that wanted it to be the full two years, or was everyone sort no, of we, like, "Yeah, it's we fine"? Didn't. No,
2: okay. the the two year mark is our target, and it gives people a, a general idea. It might end up being two and a half years. It might be a year and a half. But that's the but projected hold. It's period. just projected. You know, okay. the real thing that drives it, and the thing we're talking, we've been talking about, is the strike price. We may have projects that are three year hold period, but if we hit the strike price in a year, year and a half our commitment is to sell when we hit the strike price, not necessarily around the the target. Yeah.
1: Well, and that's where John comes in because not only does his ABI multifamily absolutely track trends and markets kind of on a more macro level, looking at from 30,000 feet, he's actually involved in actual deals that you take them individually and you kind of get more of a pulse on what's going on. You see other offers that were on the table that another person might not even know how much interest was in a sold property or how little interest.
0: Or how our neighborhood's changing.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Our property in Williams, we bought that because I got tipped off by a friend of mine that said, have you been out to East Mesa yet? Have you seen the way things are changing? I'm like, oh, come on, there's nothing out there. (laughs) Yeah, there's plenty of good families and great places to live. Yeah, But as far as multifamily, it wasn't that robust of a market. Right. And we got lucky and got that ahead of time. But not to pat any of us on the back, we've been lucky. It's a strong market, done a great job on our assets. Our customer is our buyer on the next side. So we're always trying to be as good as we can to our buyer. We do a really good job with the renovations. We help them with the project and we turn over to them something that they can feel comfortable owning for a long time. I don't know how else to make that any better for somebody, but certainly we are going to look at a lot of properties, Jameson did on 66, that he didn't want to sell it. He loved that downtown Scottsdale property as an Airbnb, and but the whole thing was we also had gone through a little bit of a quick slap on the, the face when COVID hit and we were like, oh my gosh. You we know, right. l- luckily pivoted did things, big yep. part of what we're doing.
2: Sorry, th- we, there was a little bit of admitted bias. You know, I lived a mile away from the property. My home was close by. We had finally got everything running at right. a high level.
1: I remember and that. And then
2: John's thing. trying to sell it. And that's when you have to get rid of your biases and go back to your core principles and values. And, and that's to our investors.
1: Yeah, it really speaks to the chemistry that exists between you two. You both have your Wheelhouses your areas of expertise that play off of each other for sure, but it it also prevents something from these blind spots that could potentially be negative to investors. You're always there and ready to receive that. I might have a blind spot, I might have a bias, yeah, and that, the other person can see it. Whereas sometimes it's hard for us to see our own. Of course,
2: that's the advantage of having a strong team is we bring different perspectives. Every perspective is respected. Not every perspective is necessarily valued the same. right? But every viewpoint is heard. We're not a siloed one person trying to make all these decisions that might have individual biases. We don't do things that way.
0: And I'll throw one more of those axioms of real estate. Another one is don't stay married to the real estate. You have to be able to move on. There are definitely things that I've owned that I own or have owned that I'm going, I'm never going to sell this. But the reality is, if you just put your analytical head on, it's sometimes best to sell them. So Marlette, jumping on that one, because I'm, sure. I'm sorry to jump around, but I'm seeing that no, we got okay. we want to talk about that. The Marlette was another great deal. We we actually sold it for significantly more than we thought we were going to sell on our exit. But our hold time was a little longer. We put a little more money into it because we ended up doing a lot more stuff to that property. And,
2: and we took 12 <clears throat> units to 14 units. Right. So, and yeah. we didn't necessarily plan that right at the, out of the gate.
1: Yeah. well, so. and, and that property really supported some different finishes, which I thought was really interesting. It, it supported us making sure that we did it right. For the same reason that you expressed earlier that our end customer is a buyer and we want there to be a reputation that a venture property is done right, that their corners aren't cut and that kind of reputation comes with a lot of intention per property. Not every property gets the same amount or the same level of finishes. They don't get the same um, comprehensive landscaping and that kind of thing, but they all get you know uh, plumbing, electrical, the bones of the building they're really attended to. And sometimes that takes a little longer On in a situation like Marlette where we took it to another couple of units. I think that's a really good example of we looked at that property and we saw the, the value there and we saw the opportunity. And it's, uh, you know, we want to make sure that that buyer ultimately has confidence.
0: Right. Jameson said, and I've said it, that was our heaviest lift. Mm-hmm. We took a master meter property, individual meter. We added two more units. We Did a big blowout on the way the whole thing was, each unit was configured. End product, fantastic. And worked out very well. But would I have done that again? Maybe, you know, in this market. Mm -hmm. Look at the numbers again. Is it going to work in that neighborhood? The other question is, why do we sell early?
1: Mm, That's a good one, yeah.
0: Why do we sell early? Sometimes it's because we get an offer that is hitting our strike price or above it much sooner than we thought, and we weren't even soliciting offer. James and I were just talking about this. Um, Mountain View is finished. We're stabilized. I think we have one more unit. One of the residents that was there when we first bought it is, is moving out next week, and we're going to have one more unit turned. It's time to put a new loan on that, drop our cost to debt and capital, and create more cash flow for the investors. But word's already out that we're almost done with it, and we've had people bring us unsolicited offers. And we're going—you know—we're not really sellers,
2: right? And we're only a year in, right? But, but it's not, a three-year hold. In December yeah. will be a year, yeah. In. yeah, yeah. But the renovation was done very quickly, done well. The lease up went well. There will be times where we sell earlier than we expect. And the good thing is for our investors, we'll have another project for them to put those funds in. Bingo,
0: that's it. If we can keep rolling them into other properties to an investor, they're going, I don't care if it's this one or that one or that one.
1: Yeah, I remember meeting mm-hmm. with one of our investors and she said, I love what you're doing. But what happens when you don't have another deal? Like, I don't want to hold on to my gains, I want to reinvest it as quickly as possible. And that's when we were doing fewer. And I think it's really important to note that this scale and this progress was always the plan. We always wanted to have something ready and waiting for an investor that kind of cashed out from a property when it sells to be able to reinvest it right away. Yeah. And we don't want that dead, uh, what is that, dead, dead air? Yeah.
2: And we also <laughs> have the fund now, which is only for accredited investors, but that allows folks to roll funds into our fund at any time, begin accruing their 12% preferred return, they don't have to wait for projects.
1: And it's a longer hold period. It's a five-year hold period. Yeah, right?
2: as, as much as a five-year hold period. Okay. A little sneak peek, I think we will have a fund that's open to everybody. At mm-hmm. some point, that's our goal because our core principle is bringing in real estate investing to everybody, not just wealthy accredited folks. Right now, our first step was just the accredited fund. But A fund gives you good flexibility because you're not waiting for projects. We can just buy projects and and use the fund to fund them. And that also gives people flexibility. But we are definitely committed to if we sell a bill project, you'll have another one to put it in.
1: That's right. That's right. I think it's worth noting, too, that as we extend our investor base to national investors, where we're opening it up nationwide, especially this project on Country Club, that we continue to get those projects because our local investors, they want to make sure that they can get in as well. And that's why, you know, John's, he never stops looking at deals. He never stops. Uh, no, no, no,
0: no, <laughs> Lately, I've been doing this, but people walk over to me, I don't see, I don't want to know it. That's the brokers not true. walk up and go, I got a really good deal for you. I don't want to know about it. They go, That's not you don't, true. You don't want to know about it? Right now, I think we're at the perfect place. Yeah. Talk to me in like three weeks.
1: Oh, no, oh no, just the, three weeks. Well, because.
0: We got four projects in renovation right now. Everything's going really well. Yeah,
2: yeah. Our, um, our crews kind of committed to December timeframe. Yeah, a lot of folks can get over their skis. They get real excited, and we
0: want to make sure we execute at high level. So yeah. we're we're taking uh, taking what we can chew. Yeah, that that's it. We don't overwork our guys. We appreciate everything you're doing supply chain constraints and costs, everything's changing.
1: Do you see that hold period for these individual projects, at least for local investors, changing anytime soon? Or do we like that two to three year hold period? And do investors, like, have you got any feedback that they'd like it to be a little shorter? Do they want it to be a little longer? What's the feedback? They
2: like it. They like the two or three year uh, time horizon. We may do some larger projects that take another year or two down the road, but we have a 120 unit project right now and our team's executing at, at a high level, and it's a three-year project, and I think we'll hit that. I think the timeframes have made sense so far, but it's always up, up to change based on what we think we can deliver.
1: We're pleased to announce our latest project, Venture on Country Club, is our first project open to investors nationwide, which means that your friends and family can now invest in Neighborhood Ventures projects. It's very simple. Go to smallchange.co, create an account, start investing, and enjoy the benefits of Arizona's booming real estate market.